when we die to self and surrender to the Lordship of Christ, we commit ourselves to a life of voluntary selflessness, which, as we discovered last week, is an excellent definition of submission. And Peter has made it very clear how that submission is to be expressed in the state, in the job, and in the home. In our text for today, he sums up this matter of submission by reminding us how all of life is to be lived with a submissive spirit. And in summing up submission, he instructs us to live in harmony, live in love, live in humility, and live in God's presence. Let's see how he says it in 1 Peter 3. 8 through 12. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter begins by stating that all should be harmonious. And since he is speaking to believers, his primary focus is on the fact that there is to be harmony in the body of Christ. And if Christ is Lord of our life, we will get along with each other. Now, to get harmony, it takes different notes different sounds, and that's true even in the church. There are different gifts distributed in the church, and there are different opinions among members. But there is to be no discord. They are to be blended together into a harmony. Now, the word harmony is a compound word made up of two words that mean one and the same and the mind or disposition. Christians are to be of one mind. Believers are to be bound together by a singleness of heart and purpose. We're to have the same goal around which our differing gifts and opinions are to be blended into a unified expression. We can have dialogue, but we are to respect each other's opinion. We can all have our own thoughts, but above all else, we must be seeking to have the mind of Christ. It's not what I want or what you want, but what he wants. And the best way to do that is to strive for consensus among believers who are all seeking the mind of Christ. And the first place we go to 
to discover his will, obviously, is his word. We try to discover if he has had anything to say about the matter of concern or anything that might apply to it if nothing specific is said. Our programs and plans and even our methods need to be constantly checked and rechecked by Scripture. We should never assume that just because someone has done something that appears to be successful, that it is God's will for us to do that, or maybe even for them to have done that. We should never be so close-minded either that we assume that just because we've always done something a certain way, that's the way God wants it done today. We must always be willing to re-examine previously made conclusions in light of Scripture, perhaps never before studied or understood or applied to a particular situation. Nothing destroys the witness of a church like division and discord. And if our commitment is to the Lordship of Christ, there will be harmony in the church and in our lives in general. Because we will acknowledge that collectively our brothers and sisters may have a better understanding of God's will than we do individually. And we will submit for the sake of unity. A submissive spirit will therefore lead us to live in harmony. And it will lead us to live in love. Peter actually uses three adjectives to describe the kind of love we're to have for each other. Sympathetic, brotherly, and kind-hearted. Our love is, first of all, to be sympathetic. The word means to feel with. Christians are to feel with one another. A related term occurs in Hebrews 4.15 where we're told that Jesus, our high priest, can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities that he feels with us. We are to likewise feel with one another. Now, we generally think of sympathizing with someone only in terms of sharing another's sorrow. But the term in Peter's day had a broader application and also referred to sharing in the joy or happiness of someone. The command, therefore, is for us to join with others in feelings of delight and sadness. The Apostle Paul gave similar instructions when he told us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, it's usually easy for us to weep with those who weep. We identify with, with pain. We identify with loss. It's, it's, it's a natural response for us to, to share in a brother's sorrow. But do we genuinely experience joy when a brother has something good happen to him? Or does jealousy and envy squash those feelings before they find expression? You know, all too often, I'm afraid they do. But if we've truly experienced the love of a Savior who feels our every emotion with us, a Savior who has brought us into his family, we will feel with one another 
because we are family. He's made us into family, and there is brotherly love in a family. Peter's reminding us that we are all brothers and sisters in God's glorious family. And there's no place for sibling rivalry in his family. We're not in competition with each other for God's good pleasure. He's got plenty of love to go around. And lastly, our love must be kind-hearted. It must remain sensitive to the burdens of others. The, ref- the word refers to deep inner feeling, to a clutching at the inside. The gospel writers used the verb form of this word 12 times to describe Jesus' response to suffering, grief, and heartache of sin. Our Lord was always sensitive to the burdens of others, and we ought to pray that God will make us kind-hearted, tender-hearted, and keep us that way. Something should grab us inside when thinking of our brothers and sisters. And if we've surrendered our heart to Christ, we've experienced his love, we can live in love. We can be sympathetic. We can be brotherly. We can be kind-hearted. We'll put others and their needs before our own because we've learned to live in humility. Peter says we must be humble in spirit. Now, humility comes from a proper evaluation of ourselves. And surely Christians, more than anyone else, should be able to honestly be humble. You know, every Christian has acknowledged the fact that he's a sinner and that he's dependent upon the grace of God for everything. That should be enough to keep us humble. We are sinners, and we are totally dependent upon our Creator. We are not self-made men. Christ had to remake us. We are not pretty good. Christ had to die to cover up our sinfulness. Humility on that basis is positive. It's good. And it won't lower our self-image because those facts also realize that we are important enough to God that he would do whatever was and is necessary to bring us into fellowship with himself. We are loved. And we're worth everything to him. A good way to check your humility is to examine your reaction when something goes wrong. Do you say, why me? I don't deserve this kind of treatment. Well, that reaction indicates you feel you deserve better than you're getting. That the world, your parents, your neighbors, your associates, and ultimately God owes you something. A humble person doesn't feel that God owes him anything. Not a good job, not vigorous health, even earthly acclaim. If and when these things come, it's in spite of our sinfulness. It's because God loves us and feels we can handle them with his help, not because we deserve them. 
a spirit of humility will enable us to be appreciative of what God sends our way. But it'll keep us from expecting it as if we deserved it. Humility comes from a proper evaluation of ourselves. And it enables us to accept people as they are because we've been accepted in spite of our sinfulness. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can proudly live in humility. And we will. And we will live in forgiveness. A truly submissive spirit will be seen by not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but will lead us to bless those who despitefully use us. It will lead us to forgiveness. Since we have been forgiven, we will forgive. We have to. Jesus said, if we don't forgive, we can't be forgiven. You know how easily we slide by the phrase, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors in the Lord's Prayer. I think Jesus knew we would miss the point. And that's why he immediately added verses 14 and 15 of the sixth chapter of Matthew, the verses that immediately follow the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You cannot be a Christian if you will not forgive others. All others, no exceptions. Because the difference between Christians and non-Christians is the fact that they are forgiven. And if you refuse to forgive someone, anyone, you will not be forgiven. And don't kid yourself about it either. You can't say, well, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. If you forgive, you'll make every effort to forget. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven, as God forgives us. And God forgets when he forgives. In Micah 7.19, the prophet says, God buries our sins beneath the depths of the sea. Isaiah 38.17 tells us that when God forgives us, he puts our sins behind his back so he cannot see them. And in Psalm 103.12, we read, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That is not only forgiveness, that is forgetting. But you cry, I just can't forget. I've been hurt too deeply. 
The scar is there, and it won't go away. Actually, the scar may be a good thing. It can become a constant reminder of the scars Jesus bore on his body to forgive you. And you may not be able to forgive immediately. God is able to do that, but most of us can't. But we can vow never to bring the matter up again, never to discuss it with anyone, and never to allow ourselves to dwell upon it. We can do that. And if we do, eventually, we will forget. But even that's not enough. Peter says we must go beyond forgiving to blessing. It's the same thing Jesus said in Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Our inheriting a blessing depends upon our blessing others. The word means to speak well of. And that's what we've been called to do. To speak well of others. To bless them by what we say about them. If Jesus has blessed us, we must bless others. And to do that with sincerity, we must first forgive them. And finally, a submissive spirit will quite simply be seen in all we say and do because we will live consciously in the presence of God. Peter concludes his teaching on submission by quoting from the 34th Psalm. For let him who means to love life and see good days Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God wants us to love life and see good days. You know, what kind of witness would we be if we were miserable? If we hated life and if we just barely made it through? God wants us to love life, to rejoice in His goodness and His provision, to celebrate each day as a gift from Him. And he wants our days to be good. Now, it is true that life on earth has been marred by sin. And because of sin, some days aren't very good. Still, God wants us to have good days. And our days would be better if we would consciously live submissively 
in his presence. David said the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. That's us. (laughs) Through Christ, we have been made righteous. He has forgiven us, and he has made even our faulty attempts at doing right acceptable to God. We can therefore go to him in prayer, knowing that his ears attend to our prayers. However, if we intentionally do evil, if we ignore his grace and forget in whose presence we are living, he will turn his face away from us. He will leave us to our own devices, not because he hates us, but because he wants us to remember what life is like without him and to long again for good days lived openly in his presence. And the psalmist says if we would love life and see good days, there are four things we must do. First, we are to watch what we say. We are to refrain our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking guile, from deceit and lies. We can't have a good life if we're speaking evil of others and lying to them. Secondly, if we would see good days, we must turn away from evil. In Christ, we have the power to overcome temptation. If we fail to utilize that power and get sucked into sinful behavior and responses, even though we can be forgiven, the natural consequences of our sin will rob us of the good life we could have in Christ. So when faced with evil, we must turn away and turn to the good. That's the third thing we must do. We must seek to do good. It's not enough just to refrain from evil. We must positively seek to do good. Our faith should be more evident by what we do than what we don't do. That's positive faith. And it produces a positive witness. And it's a vital step in having the good life our Heavenly Father wants us to have. Finally, if we would... Love life and see good days, we must pursue after peace. Now, we're not talking about the world stage here. We're talking about our life, our home, our heart. We seek peace by giving a soft answer when someone verbally attacks us. By forgiving those who wrong us by avoiding needless quarrels, and by willingly taking the lower place. We do this by living with a submissive spirit, knowing God's eyes are upon us and his ears are attending to our prayers. If we are living in God's presence, living submissive to his will, we will live in harmony. We will live in love. We will live in humility. We will live in forgiveness. 
But before we can do any of that, we must surrender our all to him. We must die to self and surrender to the lordship of Christ. We've been singing that hymn even more than usual the past few weeks. And I promise you, we will stop singing it when we have all surrendered. So guess what? We're going to be still singing it. Because it's hard. It's hard to surrender. Everything in our world says, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't surrender. That may be okay on the ball court. It's not good in life. It's a big difference. Big difference. We're called to live lives of submission. And the amazing thing is, submission is the key to the good life here and in the hereafter. Just keep singing it until we do it.